So, you know, we've been spending, last week we started a little mini-series that really came off the back of our series on James. And we're looking at the massive topic of prayer. And my challenge to myself and to all of us is that we take prayer seriously, both individually but also corporately as a church together. So you turn your Bibles to James chapter 5 verse 16. Don't we need to, to be honest, because it's only really one line, but um, it sometimes helps. It says this, James chapter 5, 16, second part, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. That's where we're going to be spending our time this morning. Last week I said that prayer is for everyone, that Elijah was a person just like you and me. And, and you've been given access to the almighty God, to the, 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 the creator, the, the all-powerful God who simply likes your company. And over, over the last few months, I've been asking myself the question... Why do we not experience more power in prayer? Why do we not see the effectiveness that perhaps we read about in the scriptures or even we, we hear stories about of days of revival have gone, has gone past? And today I want to look at perhaps another one of the keys to unlocking powerful, effective prayer within our lives. And the first reason we dealt with last week, and it was simply this, that we need to pray we got to start. It's, it's not radical. It's, it's just common sense, of course. We need to pray. James says, you don't have because you don't ask. John Wesley said that God does nothing but in answer to prayer. And prayer is the church's power against this world and against the enemy. We need to pray. You get that? Because we don't get that one. We don't get anything. We need to pray. But I also believe that the Bible teaches that another reason why very often we don't see this effectiveness in prayer and power in prayer is because we don't live up to our calling in Christ. And God is looking for men and women who will live humble, obedient, holy lives, prayerful lives in God's presence. Says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So what does it mean to be righteous? Is it really important? The Bible seems to be very clear and to teach us that the way that we live our lives and the condition of our hearts will affect the effectiveness of our prayer. So I want to just explore this just for, for a few moments. The first thought is this. A holy life and effective prayer are inseparable. In James chapter 4, he wrote about the importance of living right before God. He talks about how the roots of sin is selfishness and that living for your own sinful desires offends God. Listen, that is the greatest understatement I could ever have come out with. At this very moment, there are 
countless billions of angels in heaven crying out before the throne of God and they are saying holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory and there's just this infiniteness to God's holiness without limit, without measure. The purity of God is beyond our understanding. That is the God that we worship, a holy God. Three times holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Of course, these days it's very unfashionable to consider ourselves sinners. It's not popular even within church circles to actually take sin seriously. Actually, we we live by grace. But grace does not excuse sin. In fact, if we don't take sin seriously, it just cheapens God's grace that we have so freely received. And because grace is freely given to us, it does not mean for a moment that it is cheap. It costs the only beloved son of God his life. The gift of salvation is priceless. The finished work on the cross that paid for all of your sins means that through faith in Christ alone you receive the righteousness of Jesus So your salvation, it's not dependent on your efforts. It is by the grace of God alone. It's a wonderful, it's just the most, the greatest news is the gospel. But it's anything but cheap. Because of grace, I have been made holy and blameless because Jesus has paid the debt for my sins. And it's completely true, true that I have been delivered from the dominion of sin. However, I am still a practicing sinner. I wish I was not, but every day in thought, in word, in deed, I sin against God, and so do you. And if you think you don't, I would love to shake your hand afterwards, because you must be so proud. The only problem with pride lies at the root of every sin. That's how difficult this is. And we live in a society that has become just desensitized to sin. And that has infiltrated the church and it's it's very easy for us to convince ourselves that sin in itself is almost outdated and we redefine it and many Christians Define sin as sin not really being sin unless we get caught. When I was growing up on the dairy farm I was, as young boys, I have a twin brother called Colin. And we would spend a lot of time playing outside in the, in the, the farmyard. And it was quite a long way from the yard into the, the uh, house. So when we wanted to go to the toilets, we generally just weed up against the wall. I'm not proud of it. I'm just saying that's what we did. Okay. <laughs> But everything for us as, as young lads was a competition. So we would see which one of us could we highest up the wall. And this is, this is pretty mathematical. You, you've got to get the right projection. You've got to, you've got to get the right angles. You, you've got to make sure, take in kind of win conditions, very important. The last thing you want to go is backsplash. It's, But the most important thing for us was that nobody saw us. See, we thought what we were doing was perfectly normal and acceptable as long as we didn't get caught. 
And I guarantee there are many Christians even today who have that childish view of sin. You think that some sins are okay as long as you don't get caught. God says, be holy as I am holy. The second thing that people do to justify or excuse sin is to say, well, you know, I'm doing better than most people. We compare ourselves to others. We point our finger to deflect from our own sinfulness, normally maximizing their sin and minimizing our sin. But we must nev- you must never compare yourself to anybody else. You compare yourself to an infinite holy God. His standard is the only one that matters. You must not tolerate sin within your lives. Galatians chapter 5, we're told to put sin to death. The flesh with its passions and its desires, they're to be nailed to the cross, it says. You need to be ruthless with your selfishness, with your sin, because God has calling you to be like Jesus. Romans 8, 29, it says, He predestined all believers to be conformed to the image of his son. And this goal, this process we call sanctification or growth in grace or transformation all mean pretty much the same thing. But the purpose of this, the goal of this is to be like Jesus. What begins with your new birth continues until you die, until you enter the presence of God and you know this in completeness But not only has God predestined that you be transformed into the image of his son, he commands that you are are to be transformed. Romans 12, 2. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed with a renewing of your mind that you will be able to test and to improve what God's will is, his good and his pleasing and his perfect will. And this transformation process is more than just an outward change of conduct. It is a deep, penetrating work of the Holy Spirit at the very core of your being. It is the change of your heart and your intellect, your affections and your will. And although this is primarily the work of the Holy Spirit, it involves the active and the earnest pursuit of holiness without which no one will see God. Hebrews 12, 14. Listen, you must take sin seriously and the holiness of God seriously. Two reasons. First is this. You will not grow Unless you see your need to grow. Unless you realize your sinfulness, you will not pursue holiness. You will not face up to your own unholiness unless you look at the holiness of God. So you must face up to your own sins and realize that your sins are not just simply a mistake. No, we need to call them exactly what they are. They are acts of rebellion and lawlessness and despising of God and his word. The second reason for dwelling on the seriousness of sin and the holiness of God is to make you realize that you need to embrace the gospel of God's grace every single day. It's against this backdrop, the dark backdrop of our sinfulness, that the gospel shines so brightly. 
Nothing prepares a, a person to understand and to embrace the gospel so much as a personal awareness and conviction of our own sin. The gospel has got everything to do with spiritual transformation. God's grace is not just about us becoming a Christian, but without it, you cannot grow and you cannot be, and you cannot be transformed. It is the gospel that keeps you from discouragement. It keeps you growing. It keeps you pursuing his holiness. In fact, the more time that you spend in the presence of God in prayer, the more that you pursue holiness, the more you will become aware of the sins that you never even knew about. But if you do not believe that your sins are forgiven through Christ's death and resurrection, you will become discouraged and you will give up. The gospel and God's grace keeps you going. It is our hope. It is our life. It is everything. So also the gospel that keeps you from the sin of self-righteousness and pride. And embracing the gospel every day forces you to acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of the mercy of God. It stops you from falling into a performance-based relationship with God. It is by grace that you have been saved and it's by grace that you will stand. Jerry Bridges, in his book called The Pursuit of Holiness, describes three valuable lessons that we need to learn if we are to pursue the righteousness that we need, if we're to pursue the holiness that we're called to live by. Three thoughts. First is this. The eternal warfare between the flesh, that's our selfish desires, the flesh and the spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, that James refers to in chapter 4, verses 1 to 12, is normal for the Christian life. You know those battles that you face, those temptations that we're going through? You know that battle we have so often, perhaps for purity, the battle that we have within ourselves just to, to, to seek after God with everything that we have. Those battles are continual and listen, they are normal. You are not an exception. I speak to people and they, they think nobody else is dealing with these issues that I'm dealing with. Listen, they are normal. We are all facing those issues, those things. I hate to tell you that it doesn't matter how much you grow in spiritual maturity. All of your life, the desires of the flesh are going to be battling the desires of the spirit. We need to get ready for war. Whether you like it or not, you are in a battle. There's an internal battle raging within you. You need to get ready to put on the armor of God to equip yourself to stand strong, to pursue the holiness that God requires of you. The second thing is this. The more you grow in Christ-likeness, the more sin you are going to see within your lives. It is not you're sinning more. Rather, you are growing more aware of your sins and more sensitive to the sins that have been there all along. The Holy Spirit is gracious and compassionate. He does not receive he does not reveal all of our sins to us as once. Truthfully, it would crush us. None of us would stand. But he graciously, compassionately, he brings you along gradually as he works this process of transformation into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Third thought is this. Spiritual transformation requires that you have what Jerry Bridge describes a dependent responsibility. 
Throughout the Bible, there are commands and exhortations for you to take responsibility for the way in which you live. So you cannot say, just let Jesus live his life through me or let go and let God. Great little phrase. It's just not very biblical. You have a responsibility. However, at the same time, you are completely dependent on the Holy Spirit to work in you and to enable you through his power to do the work that you must do. Notice, you are doing the work as well. A dependent responsibility. We have within this Bible this, these almost appearing contradictory things, God's grace and God's spirit coming to, to equip us for the work, but also our responsibility at the same time to get off our backsides and do something. Listen, which is true? Both are true. Dependent responsibility. We need to understand this. James has been very clear that faith is only faith when it's lived out. James chapter 2. You have a responsibility to act But it is a dependent responsibility. You trust in God. You obey his word. Even sometimes when it doesn't make sense. sense, May even feel a bit crazy to you. But you are responsible for your pursuit of holiness. But also completely dependent on the Holy Spirit. For his enabling power. It's what Don Carson. He's a different terminology. He describes this. As grace-driven effort. What a quote what he says. He says this. People do not, will not drift towards holiness apart from God, apart from grace-driven effort. People do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer and obedience to scripture, faith and delight in the Lord. Instead we drift towards compromise and we call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and we call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and we call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline and the loss of self-control and we call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking that we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. Listen to me. No one accidentally becomes godly and holy. You're not just walking around one day and tripping over and stumbling and get, oh, I'm holy now. That is not, that is not the way it works. I wish it was, but this requires effort, a heart that every day seeks after God to hear from God. But listen, human effort alone is never going to be enough. You need to be careful that you don't step out of grace and try to earn what Jesus has freely given to you. It is only the grace of God and the empowering of the Holy Spirit that will keep you. It is grace-driven effort. It's dependent responsibility that will show that your faith is real. And it is a mystery as to how God does this in our lives. But he does it. And he enables us to work. He enables us to pursue righteousness. And that is not a mystery. Let me give you an example. Jonathan Edwards. Theologian and revivalist. Among many other things. He had 70 resolutions to regulate his heart and his life. And all of them were written before he was 20 years old. These resolutions were so severe that they're beyond the comprehension of most present-day Christians. So I'll just give you two examples. He resolved 
never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if this was the last hour of my life. That's a good one. Resolved never to give over, not in the least to slacken my fight against my corruption, however unsuccessful I may be. And Edwards reviewed these weekly to keep them fresh within his mind, but he also, he also recognized his complete dependence on God. So he started these resolutions with this sentence, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help. I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. In fact, later on in his life, he had to acknowledge that those early years of his pursuit of holiness, he says, were done with far too much dependence on my own strength. And he said, it only highlighted my extreme feebleness. And the bottomless depth of secret corruption and deceit that was within my heart. And it would appear that as Edwards matured, as he grew in his faith, that he moved from this theoretical understanding and awareness of his dependence of God to an actual experiential dependence on and his walk with Christ. You must learn that lesson. John 15. Without him... We can do nothing. I'm sure many of us will agree with that. Most of us believe it. But this must, this must become more than just some sort of theoretical head knowledge. It must become something that we live out, that we experience within our lives. Without him, I can do nothing. That's the way we walk. That's the way we need to live. When we face that next difficulty in life, that next challenge, without him, I can do nothing. And one reason why I think we struggle with our sin and why sometimes the Holy Spirit even holds back his power from you is to allow you to see at first hand your own feebleness and the extreme darkness of your own heart so that you may know your complete and utter dependence on him. So when we fail, and we will fail, in our struggles and in our sins. You go back to the gospel and you see Jesus bearing that very sin on his body on the cross and at the same time clothing you in his righteousness. His unmerited love for you is what gives you courage and what motivates you to press in your pursuit of holiness and righteousness even in the middle of failures. And as you pursue a humble, obedient holy life, I believe it will unlock powerful and effective prayer over your life, over your family, over your church, over your city, and over your nation. So how do these thoughts affect the way in which we pray? Tomorrow morning when you get up to pray, encouraging folks to spend time with God. It may not be in the morning, you may have another son. Can you, I just want to encourage you to spend a, a period of time that you commit to God in prayer on a daily basis. So when you come before God next, how are these thoughts going to affect the way in which you pray? Two thoughts on that. First is this. 
pray the gospel and declare God's grace over your life. Paul writes, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that depends from the, that, that, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Pray that over your life. Declare that over your life. How about verses from Isaiah? Though our sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. How about as all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Jesus Christ has taken everything. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that we might become the righteousness of God. We declare the gospel over our lives. You see God or Christ is the great initiator of your salvation. He ran after you. He called you. He brings you low. He shows you who he is and what he offers. So that you may spend time in his presence. You did not work this out. He sought you and he found you and he saved your soul. It was by the grace of God through faith in Christ that your life has been changed. On the cross, Jesus endured God's anger. He took your place. You have received forgiveness through faith alone. It is God's spirit that assures you that whatever happens, you are united in Christ for this life and for eternity. You have the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Can you declare over your lives? If you get down to pray tomorrow morning in your own personal time with God, why not start by declaring the gospel over your life? When it comes to prayer, declare the infinite value of knowing him over your home, your car, your finances, your family, even over your greatest treasure. Nothing, nothing compares to the infinite knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Is that not something that you should be praying about? Should that motivate us to pray? Should that be getting us to our knees to give thanks to God? Declare the gospel over your life. Speak truth over your life daily in prayer. Pray the gospel into your life. Listen, it never loses its power. It's an old hymn. I've forgotten it now. There's power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. Listen, he never loses his power. And as you come to pray, you start there. In your personal times with God, declare the gospel. The truth into your life. Bex, as you've been sharing earlier, you declare the gospel over your life. You declare the truth of who God is. Don't believe the lies of the enemy. We speak the gospel, the truth into our life. The second thing that we do is we come to pray. And this is, secondly, is repentance. As I've stressed, the sinfulness of our sin, the battles that are going on within us, we must consider the importance of repentance in the life of a Christian. You've heard me talk that if You do not know Jesus. You need to repent. You need to come to Jesus for the first time in salvation. This means repenting of sin, turning from them. It means also 
turning and repenting of your dependency on your good deeds that, that you think may get you to heaven. Listen, they won't. You can only get to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. However, repentance is not just a one-time event when you come to Christ, but rather a, a continual act based on the growing awareness and conviction of sin on a daily basis within our lives. Repentance begins with an attitude of brokenness over your sin. But true repentance will be followed by an earnest desire, a sincere effort to put away that sin and to repent of it. And as you mourn over those sins before an infinite holy God, you will find peace with God through grace and the hope in the promise of God that does not despise a broken and a contrite heart. Psalm 51. But repentance is not just about dealing with the sins through the cleansing blood of Jesus. It's putting on a Christ-like virtue that are missing within our lives through the Holy Spirit. As you come to prayer, to repentance, yes, we, we speak the blood of Christ to bring cleansing, but also we invite the Holy Spirit to come and to renew us, that we may walk like him and walk with him. And I can't speak for anybody else, but I find myself failing in this area as much as succeeding. But when we fail, we come right back to a broken and a contrite heart that mourns over sin. And brokenness and repentance are marks of growing Christians and prayerful Christians. But over time, you're gradually being transformed and supernaturally changed into the image of Jesus. This is our hope. This is our joy. Listen, if you're living with an unrepentant sin, if you're living with unforgiveness, or selfish desires, it will destroy your relationship with God, actually, and with others. And you will be powerless and ineffective in prayer. I want to finish this with one little story. Back to Jonathan Edwards. An example of a man who lived this life out. In 1740, God poured out revival on New England, known as the Great Awakening. It was one of the most intense outpourings of God's spirit in American history. The fire of God fell everywhere. It was this time that Edwards preached that, that sermons become fairly well known sinners in the hands of an angry God at Enfield. He preached it to his own congregation with little effect, but he felt led to use it again. It said that Edwards' technique was unimpressive. He always read his sermons in an even voice, but with great conviction, he shunned shouting and theatrical antics. He impressed his listeners with the power of truth and his, and his desperate need for God. That was his goal. There was nothing in the style of his presentation that would account for what would happen that day in Enfield. An eyewitness described that before the sermon was done, there was a great moaning and crying that went throughout the whole house. People were crying, what shall I do to be saved? Oh, I am going to hell. Oh, what shall I do for Christ? And so on. Such was the outcry that Edwards had to stop because the shrieks and the cries were piercing and amazing. The results were remarkable. It's estimated that 10% of New England was converted in two years. If you could imagine for a moment that every single church in Chester doubles and triples in size in the next two years, you get something of an idea, grasp something of the enormity of what happened there. But why Edwards? 
Well, first of all, God is sovereign. God will use who he will use. But also more than that, this was a righteous man who pursued holiness, but also understood his complete dependence on the Holy Spirit. And he believed and lived out James chapter 5, 16, that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And Jonathan Edwards' heart cry was, I wish to lie low before God as in the dust, that I might be nothing and that God might be all that I might become as a little child. God uses people like that. As we come to a close, this is a heavy sermon. I'm conscious of that. No apologies for it. This is God's word. It's a weight that comes with God's word. It's a call for righteous, holy living. Call for prayer. It's a call for God's people to take seriously the call that He has put upon each and every one of your lives. If you know Jesus, if you're living for Jesus, you don't get a get out clause on this one. Christ has called you to live before Him as a holy, to pursue holiness in Him. But you don't do this alone. It is by God's grace, by His Spirit. That he equips you and enables you. And folks, I want to encourage you to learn that dependency on him as you pursue him with everything that you have. You seek him. He will not let you down. Next week, I want to pick up on what it means to pray scripture, but also the role of the Holy Spirit in prayer. The word and the spirit can never be separated. And that is where I want to spend some time as we seek how do we pray. I want to just pray. Father, just stand, let's stand together just as we, we finish. Father, we acknowledge our deep dependence on you. And Father, we need you, Holy Spirit, just to work within our hearts. Even now, Lord God, as we Stand in your presence. Father, I want to invite you, Holy Spirit, just to, to show anything within our lives that we need to come before you. Lord, pray, Lord, give us a repentant heart that confesses regularly before you. Lord, we do this daily. Lord, we do this, Lord, because we need you. Lord, we need to have clean hands and a pure heart. And I pray that over us right now in Jesus' precious name. But also, Lord God, we declare the gospel over our lives. Lord, because of you, Lord, we can pray these sort of prayers. Because, Lord, you have dealt with our sin. And you have set us free through Christ. So, Lord, we declare our love for you. And, Father, I want to pray this week. Lord, take us further and take us deeper into you, Lord, burden us with prayer, I pray, that we may become a people that pray, that exalt your name, Lord, every single day. In Jesus' name, amen.